Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. Natan Sharansky spent nine years in Soviet prisons on charges of treason for fighting for the right of Jews to leave the Soviet Union. He was released in 1986 during an east-west prisoner swap and with his wife Avital immigrated to Israel, where he served in a number of government positions, wrote a book, more than one actually, and started a family. He served for nine years as chairman of the executive of the Jewish Agency, a post from which he retired last year. He currently serves as the chairman of the Institute of the Study of Global Antisemitism and Policy and as a devoted grandfather. Mr. Sharansky joins us today to reflect on this week's celebration of Israeli independence, 72 years after the country's founding. Mr. Sharansky, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you for inviting me. Welcome. So this week, Israel celebrates its 72nd birthday, as did you this year. Could you please share with our listeners, from your perspective, why Israel always observes its memorial and Independence Days side by side? Well, uh, because every uh, Yom Atzimut is uh, Independence Day is a very special day. Uh, it reminds us about a unique role which our generation and the generation of our fathers is playing in thousand years of Jewish history. Uh, how we are maybe the last generation who can appreciate how much, how dramatically the world changed and the fate of Jewish people changed because of the state of Israel. We lived in the world where Israel existed only in our dreams. And then we fought for our right to live in Israel. And then we live, enjoy life in Israel. So it's a very meaningful day. But I would say that this year, it became especially meaningful. Corona being such a big disaster at the same time did something good to the people. It reminded all of us how we are one, how we are united. And I can tell you that celebration of Yom Atzmaut, everybody in his or her apartment, but standing on the uh, balcony or in the yard and singing together with all your neighbors, it's unbelievable feeling. I have to say that from eight in the morning, uh, in the evening when official filah prayer for uh, the state of Israel was taking place. We had more than minyan, and there were some people with uh, strong voices enough that three, four streets would hear. But then from 10 to 12 at night, people, there was like a public singing. Mm. All the songs, the best of Israel. And I think never neighbors, I, so for 30 years I'm living in this neighborhood, I think never the neighbors could appreciate the power of our friendship and our connection. So you talk a lot about the tie between freedom and identity, the importance of freedom and identity for every human being. And I'm really curious how this time has amplified that relationship, that significance. And really the scene you just described kind of made me think about that. Surprisingly, the ironic twist of the fate I now mainly as advisor to different Jewish communities, different people from Alaska to Australia, how to spend your time in solitary confinement. Right. And it's really funny because people are not in solitary confinement. People are connected through Zoom. They can read whatever they want. They, they can enjoy life in many different ways. 
And of course, I know there's a later. But it seemed that this phenomena, when suddenly uh, all the plans, family plans are broken, you planned vacations, or you, uh, you had some uh, ambitions about your career, and all this is broken, you have to stop doing it. It can be very effective, this can be very traumatic. And my advice is that you are in this battle, in a very special battle where you are a soldier, and on each of you, depends whether we will succeed in this battle. Uh, on the other hand, I say never forget about your sense of humor. Hmm. As long as you can laugh on this stage, you can hear enjoy jokes about yourself, you are a free person. And uh, don't be dependent on things which don't depend on you. Like, don't think, oh, tomorrow it has to finish, or in two weeks it will finish. You'll be disappointed, you'll be depressed. Make your own plans, like the next month I will study Hebrew. It's about how to be free even when you are isolated. Because freedom in the end, it's not something external. People are free when they love what they want to love, when they can plan their future and live in accordance with this future. So, first of all, that's a real test for your freedom because you are really a free person if you're inner free. They cannot make you a slave. I was reminding myself all the time. KGB cannot make you a slave. KGB cannot humiliate you. Only you can humiliate you, or you can be a free person, even in prison. Good time to remember that there are things which are bigger than your own physical survival, Mm -hmm. that you have family, that you have people, that you have faith. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's all about how to enjoy your freedom and your identity. Now, Israel and the Jewish diaspora were celebrating the progress that has been made in 72 years. What dreams, aspirations were envisioned for Israel in its early days that have yet to be fulfilled? In other words, what's next or should be next for the Jewish state? Well, uh, uh, Israel uh, was designed or was dreamt about, was planned, was uh, envisioned by Theodor Herzl and later by Ben-Gurion and, of course, many others, as the home for the Jews. Some people thought about it literally, that uh, as Herzl was saying, that when Israel will be created, everybody all will come to Israel or all will be assimilated. Well, later, of course, it became much more challenging. And today, I think many people understand that many Israelis, I'm speaking about it all the time, that Israel must be home for the Jews, for those who live in Israel and for those who chose not to live in Israel. Mm-hmm. And that is the challenge. We have our historical right on this land and on this state, which the world recognizes then. It's not we Israelis, we Jewish people. Mm. So, and a lot has been done. And of course, the majority of Jews, by far the biggest Jewish community in the world today is Israel. But did we do everything that every Jew in the world will feel that Israel is their home too? That's a question. And traditionally, it was like the question, which challenge, which Israelis were addressing the Jews of diaspora. So when will you decide to come to Israel? What are you doing there? Mm-hmm. Today, together with this question, as Israeli, I have this question. But as a Jew who feels yourself, myself no less the Jew of diaspora, I am asking Israel all the time, getting from prime minister, are we really doing everything that every Jew in the world will feel that that's their home? And thanks God. We are not a poor relative anymore. We are a startup nation. 
we are very successful economically. We are unique, absolutely unique laboratory of integration of uh, people from 100 different backgrounds. We are the only democracy in the Middle East uh, surrounded by dictatorships. And we were a very proud national state in the free world when many countries in the free world are losing their national identity. So it's all very challenging and very exciting. Mm -hmm. So you talk about being the only Jewish democracy in the Middle East. And you've also said that an Israeli-Palestinian peace process would not truly work unless the Palestinian people embrace democracy. Do you still believe that? And do you foresee signs of that happening? Uh, Palestinian society deserves to be developed civil society as all, all others. And the fact that we, free world and Israel, on our own, deciding that in, for peace, we, we had to bring here a dictator to say to the to Palestinians, uh, whether you want or not, now he, Yasser Arafat, will be your leader, permitted, in fact, almost bless him to destroy all the beginnings of civil society. And until this day, the guarantee of peace is built to be a strong dictator who will control the lives of Palestinians. Mm -hmm. I believe it's not start. I believe it's 30 years ago, and I believe it today. And of course, the fact that, unfortunately, the leaders of Palestinians are uh, doing everything not to permit development of civil society. And uh, as, as a result, it's closely connected to this, and to keep to strengthen hatred towards Israel because that's their way to control their own people. I think it's unfortunate, and I think we must make a very clear linkage. We, it's free world, because America no longer than Israel, have to make very clear linkage between peace process and encouraging a more developed democratic civil society on Palestinian side. And uh, only such a process can be real peace process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Do you see signs of promise for that? There are signs. I would say with many negative things which are happening, but definitely there is beginnings of the independent economy on Palestinian side. In spite of the uh, fact that Palestinian Authority never really supported economical independence of its own people, the peace plan of President Trump. Mm -hmm. A lot of skepticism, and uh, we have no part, and so on. And by the way, a lot of this skepticism is justified. But look, there is one element which almost is unnoticed. Uh, in this plan, in fact, it is said, there is no way simply to impose uh, peace. Mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I don't know if President Trump really thinks in terms of linkage of human rights and peace. I doubt about it. But the fact that his plan, which was developed, has these two stages, that on the first stage, Palestinian society, uh, encouraging it to become much more free, much more economically independent, with some civil rights institutions emerging, and then to come to the serious building of the peace. It will not be the presidents who will bring peace uh, to the people. It will uh, grow from bottom up. So let's stay on the topic of democracy for a little bit. We see incidents of anti-Semitism emerging around the world, especially throughout Europe. Some also have pointed out that today's generation 
doesn't truly appreciate the sacrifices and the responsibilities of, of upholding democracy and freedom or the importance of freedom and identity, as, as we spoke about before. Do you see either one of these troubling signs as signs that democracy, liberal democracy, may be in danger? Uh, well, uh, yes. You know what? I'll quote you from one conversation which I had with French philosopher Alan Finkelkraut a few years ago. I asked many people in France the same question, if there is future for Jews in France, because mm. I was predicting that there will be big exodus of Jews in France, and finally it started. And just like four years ago, I happened to be in Paris, and I, I read some articles of Finkelkraut, and I saw how similar are some of the ideas. And I came and asked him, do you think there is future for Jews in France? But, and he told me, you know, I don't know, because I, though I'm Jew and I'm fighting against anti-Semitism, I'm not really a part of, active part of the Jewish community, that's why I, I don't know. But my concern is much bigger than yours. My concern is if there is future for France in France. Mm. And then I laughed and said, no, I can assure you that there is always future for France and Israel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... You spoke about the, the old and the new anti-Semitism, and certainly anti-Semitism is nothing new for Iran. Uh, and that is, we, we are hearing accusations from Iran that indeed, you know, Israel is responsible for uh, the coronavirus. So let's talk about Iran. And there are two types of anti-Semitic statements. First of all, that corona is because of Jews or Israel. And second, that Jews are making money on corona. Right. And these are two typical statements of old and new anti-Semites. Which certainly, as financial difficulties increase, we're going to hear more of, uh, unfortunately. So you turned 72 this year, as did Israel this week. And I'm curious what your hope for Israel is uh, in its 73rd year, what your hopes for yourself are. What, What plans do you have for your 73rd year as well? Well, uh, I have big plans. When I was in prison, we didn't know if we'll ever have children. We have two daughters, and I was explaining to our daughters from the age of their bat mitzvah that we are very old parents, and we need grandchildren as soon as possible. They were saying, Father, but we have to get married. I said, it's your problem to get married, my problem, grandchildren. And the moment I became the chairman of Jewish agency, it became a very fruitful period of my life because they got married and started bringing me grandchildren every year. So now I have some grandchildren. And now my plans are to, to be at uh, the breed of my great-grandchildren. Ah. <laughs> I have very big plans. As to uh, Israel is playing absolutely unique role in modern history because of these two things that we were speaking about, importance of freedom and uh, identity. Here we are seeing how the world is polarized between those, like in modern Europe, who are sacrificing their identity for the sake of freedom, because they want to to prevent new world war. So they are ready to give away their identity, their religion, their national pride for the sake of freedom. And on the other hand, we have the world, which is, uh, there is no value of freedom, but there is a big value of identity. And all the fundamentals which grew, it's, all identity without freedom. When we left Egypt, we got our freedom and our identity as a package deal. 
And since then, for thousands of years, we are fighting for this. And Israel, what Israel is fighting for? To be democratic state in the Middle East among dictatorships, and to be Jewish state in the free world among postmodern uh, that is so Israel by its very existence and by the very insistence that we will be Jewish and we will be democratic is really linking these two poles and pushing everybody to keep this middle golden path of enjoying your identity and enjoying your freedom. And for this point, we, we, that is one of the faces of being light to the nation. I wish and I hope that in the end, the, the world, even those in the world who are taking us exactly for keeping this balance, will recognize uh, our unique leadership and it will make uh, all of the world a better place. I presume we're hearing the beautiful sounds of your grandchildren in the background there. <laughs> they don't have patience to this long Jewish conversation. Oh, uh, no, no, but, that, but it's, it's a beautiful sound. And it's one that we are certainly willing to tolerate on this podcast and have been for the last several weeks, including my children. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to, you know, I, I have, I confess I have an irreverent side. And I actually, I considered asking you what lessons you had learned in solitary confinement that we could apply to the quarantine. And then I realized you made an entire video offering tips to surviving sheltering in place. We'll, we'll include a link to that video in our show notes so that listeners can see it. After this video, I really I am in doubt why I'm trying to write all these articles and all these books, because all my books and all my articles together and all my speeches didn't reach so many people as these three minutes in which I simply shared my experience, summarized my experience in solitary confinement. Yeah. So... Uh, Probably that is the future. People will stop writing and reading books. They'll be uh, speaking through clips. <laughs> Twist our mind and readjust it to new reality. Oh, God willing, we'll never stop writing books. <laughs> well, can you share one last piece of advice for our listeners uh, to help them keep their chin up during this quarantine time that is going on and on? Never stop laughing. Never stop ah. There is a lot of jokes on the internet in English and Hebrew and Russian about the craziness of Corona and ourselves. Enjoy them. Enjoy <laughs> them to everybody. As long as you can laugh on yourself, you're free to <laughs> Well, thank you so much, Mr. Sharansky, for joining us on our podcast. Thank you. Stay well. Stay well. <laughs> On Thursday in the very early morning, Germany's federal government announced that it was designating Hezbollah as a terrorist organization. This announcement is the culmination of a great deal of advocacy and diplomacy and is a great win for those who oppose Hezbollah's decades of Islamist violence and flouting of the rule of law. AJC CEO David Harris joins us now to explain why the announcement is so consequential. David, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Sefi. Now, the European Union as a whole had already designated the military wing of Hezbollah as a terrorist organization, I think back in 2013. Why didn't AJC just sit back then, kick up our heels, pat ourselves on the back and say, good advocating, job well done? Because it was only half a job. 
and it was a false distinction that was created by the European Union for political convenience. It's not a distinction that Hezbollah itself makes. To the contrary, Hezbollah leaders poo-pooed the EU decision uh, and said, we're one organization, we're not two. Uh, and of course, the Israelis, the Americans, and others who watch Hezbollah closely said the exact same thing. So we applauded Europe for taking one step forward. But in the last seven years, we've reminded Europe that there's still a second step to be taken. And now Germany, not waiting for a decision in Brussels, has moved ahead on its own. We applaud that. Now, Hezbollah is based in Lebanon and primarily menaces Israel. Why should Germany, other than, you know, a sense of feeling bad for Israel, why should Germany even care about the group? Well, first of all, Hezbollah may be based in Lebanon, but it has regional and global tentacles. And um, it has pursued its, its ambitions uh, in Argentina with the attacks in 1992 and 1994 against the Israeli embassy and then against the Jewish Community Center with deadly success. Uh, it has uh, operated against the American embassy in Beirut uh, it has operated against Israeli tourists in Bulgaria, Bulgaria being an EU member state. It has sent its operatives to Cyprus to case out potential targets. Cyprus is also an EU member state. Uh, and uh, Hezbollah is also active in Syria on the side of Assad. It's been engaged in war crimes. So from the perspective of Europe, it's not just about a regional actor far away from Europe. It's a global actor that also has operated on European soil. And by the way, not just against Jews. Hezbollah is also a criminal organization. It's involved in narco-trafficking, in money laundering, and all kinds of other nefarious things as well. So if the EU stands for values, and it does, and those values include a peace and cooperation and respect, then Hezbollah violates every single one of those values, which is why it's so important for Europe as a group um, to stand up. We hope the German decision now will prompt Europe to take another look at the issue and summon the, the, the collective will to, um, to put Hezbollah in its entirety, keywords, in its entirety on the terrorism list. One article that I saw covering uh, this decision by Germany highlighted the fact that Germany has a special relationship with Israel, partially, but not only, but partially on, on the basis of the fact that of German crimes during World War II because of the Holocaust. Did that make Germany a particularly easy partner for this kind of advocacy? Do you think that it, it's more of an uphill road to convince other EU member states? Um, two things. Uh, firstly, um, Germany is the third European country to take this position. It's not the first. Uh, the first was the Netherlands. Uh, the second was uh, the United Kingdom. Of course, since then, the United Kingdom has left the European Union, so we don't include it when we count up the EU member states who have taken this decision. Um, so it's not just about Germany's special relationship with Israel or its sense of historical responsibility the Netherlands and Britain were not guided by necessarily the same motivations. And secondly, this was not an easy decision for Germany. I, mean, I, I speak from personal experience here. I've been advocating on this specific issue of Hezbollah uh, in Europe, including in Germany, for approximately 20 years, two decades. 
So this was far from an easy decision. Now the stars were aligned and the German decision came, but no one should think that this was an overnight decision somehow connected to uh, the fact that Germany felt a sense of responsibility 75 years ago and kind of quickly, quickly decided to put Hezbollah activities on a banned list. No, much more complicated. Now, you won't say this, but I feel that I can say it, which is that you and our colleagues in our AJC office in Berlin and many other AJC staffers are among the heroes of this story. But David, who else are the heroes of this story? Who in Germany and elsewhere deserves our gratitude for making this happen? I think we have to look in in three places, Sefi. First of all, uh, in Germany itself. After all, this was a decision made in Germany and approved by the German government. The hero of the story at the moment is the Minister of Interior, uh, Minister Seehofer. He was the one who was convinced that this decision had to be made. It had to be made on his watch. And the Ministry of Interior, which in Germany is not like the Secretary of Interior in the United States, but in, in Europe, when the Ministry of Interior is about uh, counterterrorism and national security. So, so he drove this together with his staff. Uh, the intelligence community was also important in Germany and supported the decision. The foreign ministry had to sign off as well because there would be potentially diplomatic ramifications if, if, if Germany took this step. And under Heiko Maas, the current foreign minister, they did sign off. And of course, a decision of this magnitude also needed the approval of the chancellor's office, Chancellor Merkel. So the stars were aligned. Plus, in December, a few months ago, the German parliament also acted on Hezbollah and showed that there was a majority in, in the German parliament. So therefore, representing sort of national uh, feelings, that Germany was ready for this step. In addition, the United States government, uh, the Trump administration, in particular Secretary Mike Pompeo, and our ambassador in Berlin, Rick Grinnell, were also very much focused on getting this issue accomplished, and one has to give credit to them. And needless to say, the Israeli government has had an interest um, in, 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 in Germany banning Hezbollah activity and ending this, if you will, charade that there really are two Hezbollahs so I think when we speak about government actors, though it's within that universe, Sefi, that we find the people who made this happen. Mm. Well, as we established at the beginning, David, AJC is not the kind of organization to pat ourselves on the back and rest easy. So just to close, can you tell us what's the next step? Will you and our teams in Europe be working to leverage this win into convincing more countries to make this important designation? So first of all, the lesson, the, the advocacy lesson here, and not just for AJC, but because because AJC was a player here, was you can't just show up at the last minute at the doorstep of a country and simply say, please ban Hezbollah and maybe issue a, a tweet or a posting on Facebook and then believe that you're going to have any impact. Mm. In, order, in order to have impact on a government like Germany, on a decision this consequential with so many potential ramifications, you have to have credibility. And there is no Jewish organization in the world outside of Germany that has more credibility over more years than the American Jewish Committee, which began to engage Germany in 1949. And if we had the time, Sefi, I'd take you through all the milestones that showed 
um, how we engage Germany in a two-way relationship, not a one-way relationship, but a two-way relationship. So that when we spoke on Hezbollah, we spoke with a certain standing and a certain stature and credibility that people took seriously and didn't simply dismiss. As for next steps, well, there are still 25 EU member states, by my count, that have not yet um, banned Hezbollah activity on their soil, either nationally, nor have they come together in Brussels as a group of 27 to make that determination either. So we're still hoping that Brussels will make that decision when the 27 come together. But if they don't, uh, who's the next Germany? Who's the next Netherlands? And you can be sure that AJC advocacy will be encouraging other countries to stand up for European values, not for AJC values, for European values to stand up and call Hezbollah what it is, a global terrorist, criminal, anti-Semitic organization that has no place anywhere on European soil. Well, much work still remains, but this is a very, very important and consequential milestone in the fight for justice. Uh, David, thank you so much for joining us. My great pleasure, Sethi. Thank you for having me. This month, British Labour Party members selected Keir Starmer to replace Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the party. Under Corbyn, the party had become known as extremely hostile to Jews, and many Jews in Labour resigned their membership. In the most recent national elections, Corbyn led the party to a historic defeat. Will Keir Starmer's leadership fix the anti-Semitism in the Labour Party? Joining us now is Hannah Rose, a young British Jewish leader, a former member of the Labour Party herself, and the former president of the UK's Union of Jewish Students, an umbrella group representing Jewish students across the country. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. First things first, we were all very worried about our brothers and sisters in the British Jewish community as COVID spiked in the UK. What is morale like right now in the community? Well, I'm sure it's the same as in America. We've seen an increased proportion of deaths within the Jewish community and within other uh, minority ethnic communities. So it's been a really difficult time, especially over Pesach. But we're getting through it and we're all really positive that hopefully within the next few weeks we can start moving, we can start going out um, and hopefully get back to normal as soon as possible. Good. Yeah, I'm coming to you from my childhood bedroom at my parents' house in New Jersey. So I feel similarly that it would be good to kind of get out and uh, and be able to move around again. One thing that many Jewish communities around the world have been reporting, including here in the U.S., is that they've seen a spike in anti-Semites trying to put the blame for the virus on Jews. Is that something that people have seen at all in the U.K.? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, all of this comes from an online community, uh, which is global. But we know that conspiracy theorists and far-right figures feed off kind of chaos in society and this idea that we need to bring about the end of society in order to accelerate far-right beliefs and create that divide in society. And of course, that always comes back to the Jews, that always comes back to anti-Semitism. Um, and it's kind of good cannon fodder for these people that like to use all kinds of conspiracy theories to promote anti-Semitism. But, you know, it's connected to 5G, it's connected to all these different coronavirus conspiracy theories, but hopefully with strong leadership, we can get through it. Well, speaking of leadership, interestingly, while Prime Minister Boris Johnson was incapacitated with the virus, the foreign minister, Dominic Rabb, 
whose Jewish father fled the Nazis, performed the duties of the PM. Now, Rab himself isn't Jewish, but I'm curious, you know, either because he became a, a target for anti-Semites or on, on the positive side of things, you know, I, I don't know to what extent the British Jewish community kind of claims Rab or, or feels a sense of pride in Rab. Was that a significant moment for the community? Rab's not so directly involved in the Jewish community, um, although the stories that he shares about his heritage are particularly interesting to Jewish people. But it was a it was a worrying time. There's other members of the cabinet who also stepped up during that time, such as Robert Jenrick. He's married to a Jewish woman. His kids go to Jewish primary school. Um, so and he's the community's minister. Hmm. So it's really great to have that support from government. Uh, but thankfully, Boris Johnson's healthy again. He's actually had a child a couple of hours ago. Um, so we are we're glad to uh, see a healthy prime minister once again. Yes, and and a hearty mazel tov to Boris Johnson. Now, speaking of Johnson and the election in which he prevailed a few months back, there have been a few uh, developments lately uh, with the drawn-out saga of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. Now, there's a new Labour Party leader now, Keir Starmer. We're interested in hearing from you, Hannah. Is there a sense that Starmer is going to be better on the anti-Semitism issue than his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn, was? So it's it's difficult to imagine a leader who would be worse at anti-Semitism than Jeremy Corbyn. So in that respect, yes, but it is early days and it's difficult to quantify what is going to happen and when. Because this whole saga that's happened over the past five years, we've said time and time again, it's not just about the leadership, it's institutional problem. And that means that it's not going to change overnight with the change of leadership, although, of course, that helps. So Starmer has served in the shadow cabinet under Jeremy Corbyn for a number of years. He was shadow Brexit minister. And during that time, he didn't he wasn't a strong opponent of Jeremy Corbyn. He also wasn't a strong ally. He was somewhere in the middle, just kind of towing the party line and focusing on the Brexit issue, which is also important. But since the defeat of the Labour Party, a huge defeat in the December election, it's very easy to say, I want to prevent anti-Semitism. I want to create the Labour Party that we all need. And all the candidates did that. Even the candidate who had been backed by the hard left of the party, who had been the problem when it came to anti-Semitism in the past. So, you know, all the candidates say, I'm going to sort this out. I was the one to speak out. We didn't really see it from Keir Starmer. But he has already, since his election, made a number of moves, which have been really important for the Jewish community. So his first speech that he made, he apologised for anti-Semitism, which is something that Corbyn was very, very hard pressed to do. And there's an interview where he's asked repeatedly, will you apologise? And he doesn't. It's remarkable. I think he's asked like three times or something. And each time he kind of wiggles out of it. Yeah, exactly. That was that was Corbyn we're talking about. Yeah, that was Corbyn. So Keir Starmer even saying on his first interview or his first statement, I'm sorry, shouldn't be a big step. But you know, it's a low bar we're working with here. So that was great. And then in the first few days, he also met with Jewish community leadership, which is something that hadn't happened for a number of years. So we are starting to see coming together of all these relations again and we're starting to heal those divides but there are a number of steps that have to happen before the Labour Party is a safe place for Jewish people anymore. Mm -hmm. One thing that we're hearing is 
this kind of idea that Jeremy Corbyn may be gone, but Corbynism is not gone from the party. Um, and that's manifesting itself in a number of odd ways. The European Court of Human Rights had requested, demanded a investigation into the anti-Semitism issues within the Labour Party. And the Labour Party was compiling that report. And now, if I'm getting this right, I understand that the report is being shelved and there's a theory running around kind of the Corbyn wing of labor that the reason why is because what it really proves is that moderates in the party were out to get Jeremy Corbyn and were turning this all this anti-Semitism thing into kind of a big to do unnecessarily. First of all, did, did I get the story right? <laughs> and second of all, what do you think of that? So there's a number of different things going on at the same time. I think what you might be referring to is the Equality and Human Rights Commission submission. Yeah. At the EHRT. Sure. So what happened a couple of years ago was that when it got to the point where there was absolutely no way that Corbyn or the Labour Party would listen to Jewish people, the Jewish Labour movement, together with the community, submitted a report to the um, EHRC, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, saying you need to investigate institutional racism and that is a really really rare thing to happen for the EHRC to even take on a report it's only happened a number of times with uh, I think once before with institutional racism in the police and the last party to even be investigated was the British National Party which is a far-right party in the UK so it was a huge deal and this report is yet to come back it will hopefully be coming back this year and what we expect it to say is that there was institutional racism within the Labour Party. Now, obviously, the people who were being anti-Semitic in the party don't really like this because this institution was created under the Labour Party. But now they're saying, well, it's biased. Um, it's not even a real institution because they are worried about what it might say. So what was leaked a couple of weeks ago is a report which is believed to be written by Jenny Formby, who is the General Secretary of the Labour Party, put in place by Jeremy Corbyn. And what it tries to do is construct a narrative that says all of this was just people trying to bully Jeremy Corbyn because they didn't like his politics. You know, it's not actually about anti-Semitism. They just didn't like Corbyn. And um, this report proves it. In fact... What happened is this report was rejected from being submitted to the investigation by the Equality and Human Rights Commission by Labour's own lawyers, because in it, it says we recognise there is anti-Semitism in the party. We recognise how bad it is. And it tries to shift blame from the people who did it to the people who were actually victims of anti-Semitism. So it's basically the far left within the party saying none of this is our fault. This is all everyone else's fault. It's been a bit of a row um, since this came out. Uh, the major issue with it being that when it was leaked by far left elements of the Labour Party, none of the names or submissions were redacted. So it was a huge data leak. And lots of people who had submitted complaints, lots of Jewish members who had submitted complaints, all of that private information was leaked about who they submitted complaints and when. And actually, we now know that some of those people's names, young Jewish activists, have ended up on far right lists in the US. Wow. Yeah. So it's a really, a really worrying problem. And actually, their report just doesn't prove what people think it proves. Because 
a number of the people within that report, you know, it's looking into WhatsApp conversations and all these behind the scenes conversations, not things that I know about personally. And some of the language in there is really worrying, even like no matter who from the Labour Party, what wing they come from, no matter who said it, it's worrying to hear these people speak in such a manner. But it doesn't at all prove that Jeremy Corbyn is innocent and that the far left wing of the party is innocent. All it proves is that people are trying to double down on this conspiracy theory that it was all about Jeremy Corbyn, all just trying to prove him, prove that he was a bad person or a bad politician. No, it's about anti-Semitism. And this report is just another embarrassing scandal from the Labour Party trying to prove their innocence. Wow. Well, thank you for, first of all, for clearing up my question. And, and second of all, for that answer, that is a, a worrying story and something that I, I gather is um, is still unfolding. Um, I want to close, uh, if I may, by asking something of a, of a personal question. In 2018, you publicly announced your resignation from the Labour Party, saying at the time, my Jewish values led me to join the Labour Party, and now my being Jewish leaves me no choice but to resign. Hannah, with the direction that the Labour Party is going now, what is the right time for you, who presumably still holds these values that align with the Labour Party, what is the right time for you to be willing to entrust your vote to Labour again or even to join the party again? Is that something that you could see yourself doing in the future? It's um, it's a good question and it's a difficult question. And I remember on election night when the results were announced, firstly, I was so relieved that we wouldn't have someone that problematic in office. And then my next thought was hope for the Labour Party. And I hadn't felt that in so long. And it was such an exciting feeling. And look, Keir Starmer's made the first few moves absolutely correctly. He's looking to bring together relations with the Jewish community. He said that he'll look at the processes. But This was never a problem about just Jeremy Corbyn. It was an institutional problem. And although the leadership has changed, and we said time and time again, we need good leadership on this issue, there's still the constituency Labour parties, the local parties, that some of them are hugely problematic. The membership is still, sections of the membership are still really worrying. There's still a huge backlog of cases of anti-Semitism, which haven't been sorted, haven't been addressed. The Jenny Formby, the General Secretary of the Labour Party, who sat on this complaints process that we now know to be completely corrupt, is still in place. And there are loads of different sections of the party that still make it a place that I wouldn't rejoin. I do know people, young Jewish people, who have rejoined the Labour Party, having resigned from anti-Semitism. For me, it's not the right time yet. I don't know when it will be. I'd also want to see the results of the uh, EHRC report coming out. But who knows? When this dossier was leaked on Twitter, it was just more factional infighting, more bickering, more accusations of anti-Semitism. And I just thought, you know, is this a party that is even working to change the country or are they just working to shout at each other? And until they prove that they are a force for good in the UK, I can't look at rejoining. Wow. Okay. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us and all of us uh, here at People of the Pod hope that you are uh, staying safe and staying healthy and staying sane. Thank you. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me.
Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. And joining us at our Shabbat table this week is Jessica Steinberg, the culture editor at the Times of Israel. Jessica, when you're talking with your family and friends at your Shabbat table this week, what are you going to be talking about? Well, for the first time in a very long time, we're going to have other people at our Shabbat table. Oh, Mazel Tov! (laughs) Yes. Um, I am married and I have twin 11-year-old sons and we've been together for many weeks now for many meals. But my sister lives up the block um, and she's married with three kids and her youngest, who is 23 and has Down syndrome, is living at home with them. And they will be coming to us for Shabbat dinner. And that is a big deal for obvious reasons. And I think we're going to be talking about the fact that um, here in Israel, we are emerging a little bit, more than a little. Uh, Kids from first through third are going back to school on Sunday in smaller groups and, um, and staggered with staggered hours. Uh, kindergarten kids might also be going back. The government is going to decide that um, finally tomorrow. My kids are in fifth grade, so they're not going back. And yet at the same time, we're feeling this return to some level of normalcy. And that's what we're going to be talking about at the table as we eat together with our extended family, as we, of course, eat home-baked challah, which now I've been doing for eight weeks. Um, and is much better than the bakery stuff. <laughs> I bet. Right. And we're eating a lot of asparagus all the time because Israeli farmers who haven't been able to export their produce or sell it to hotels and uh, restaurants have been selling it. And it's been coordinated by all these WhatsApp groups all over the country. So I've made mounds of pesto and tons of asparagus and fresh rosemary is on everything. And those are the things we're going to be talking about because we're sort of reintroducing what's been going on in this around the table together for the first time in what feels like a very long time. Well, you should raise a l'chaim to normalcy and hopefully we here in the States are not too far behind you. Manya, what are you guys going to be talking about at your Shabbat table this week? Well, Sefi, Jessica, AJC recently released a list of 10 nonfiction titles that help readers understand why Israel observes its independence and Memorial Days side by side. Staff recommended five books that addressed Israel's struggle to defend itself and five books that talked about the progress Israel has made and the contributions it has made to the rest of the world. But there was one thing missing from the list, which is so often the case, women. That's not to say the titles aren't good. They're incredible, even definitive works of history and journalism. But unfortunately, including no books by women is a shortcoming that takes a concerted effort to overcome. I encountered this challenge a lot as a religion reporter across the religious spectrum. I'd report a story, and just when I thought my reporting was complete, would realize I had quoted all men. I would scramble to find a woman's voice to insert, and sadly, more often than I care to recall, women often declined to comment, or suggested someone better suited, a man. I became more and more aware in the process of reporting, as well as transparent, telling women how important it was to me that our voices be included in the conversation. Sometimes that worked, sometimes it didn't. In this case, there were several women who already had written works of nonfiction tied to the Israeli journey. Historian Anita Shapira has written a dozen books and biographies on Israeli leaders that shaped the nation's struggle from Ben-Gurion to Brenner. In her collection of essays, The Art of Leaving, Ayelet Sabari recounts her story of leaving Israel after serving in the IDF and returning ever so often to examine and come to terms with her Jewish Yemeni, her Mizrahi identity, and her family history. 
Fania Oz Salzberger, the daughter of Amos Oz, but herself an Israeli historian and writer, wrote a moving account of Israelis in Berlin, exploring the question of whether ties between Israel and Germany could ever become normal after the Holocaust. That was in 2001. I'm sure she would have been intrigued to see AJC Global Forum in Berlin before AJC canceled it to keep everyone safe from the coronavirus. And these are just nonfiction authors. There are a number of novelists whose fiction reveals more truth than some historians can. The importance of women and their voices. That's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. But now I turn to you guys. Sefi, Jessica, what books about Israel's history by women would you recommend? Well, in the realm of nonfiction, I tend to be almost always on a history binge. Anita Shapira is one of the foremost living Israeli historians, and her book, uh, Israel History, is magisterial. And actually, probably about, oh, you know what? It was exactly two years ago on a Yom Ha'atzma'ut podcast that I interviewed Francine Klagsbrunn about her then new biography of Golda Meir, Lioness, which is phenomenal. Cool. Cool. Jessica, how about you? Well, I have to say um, that I was looking on my shelf the other day uh, because I'm, of course, cleaning out, weeding out all my shelves. And I came across Dorit Rabinyan's All the Rivers um, with her 2014 novel. It tells the love story of a Palestinian man and Israeli woman who meet in New York. And it, um, I put it on my night table and I've been sort of rereading parts of it partially because it takes place in New York. And even though it's this outsider's view of New York, I'm a New Yorker originally, and I, what's been going on with the coronavirus in New York just has made me want to see, read, hear as much of New York-ness uh, as I possibly can. But of course, it's a, it's a story, and um, it's taken on this historical context here in Israel about, you know, even though there's the coronavirus, there's still the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And... Um, and this is a story that kind of normalizes it in a sense. And that's hard. That's hard for Israelis. It's hard for Palestinians. It's hard for everyone. And it's something that you think about, of course, on Yom Ha'atzma'ud on Israel Independence Day, which um, 72 years in, still got the same problems. But, um, <laughs> but you know, this kind of reading, uh, Dorit Avignon's book is really masterful, I think. And it pushes you, pushes you to think, Think about what could be, what you'd like it to be, what it could be over the next years, and maybe that would possibly ever happen. So that's what I'm looking at. Oh, I do like to be pushed. Sefi, what are you going to be talking about at your Shabbat table? Well, back in my Camp Ramad days, one of my favorite educational activities was learning about the different early streams of Zionism. There was never one right way to be a Zionist. Theodore Herzl, the father of modern Zionism, believed that through the practice of politics, Jews could convince the world to grant them a state. That's why his approach was called political Zionism. You know, labor Zionists like David Ben-Gurion drew on the socialist principles popular at the time and said, it's not enough to ask the world for a state. We need to go out and work the fields and build one. Religious Zionists like Rabbi Avraham Yitzhak HaKohen Cook believed that the creation of a Jewish state was the expression of God's will on earth. And revisionist Zionism, the branch founded by Zev Jabotinsky and led to power by Menachem Begin, emphasized territorial maximalism, getting as much of the historic land of Israel as possible. Now, why am I talking about all this? Because at Ramah, they wanted us to get creative, and our counselors offered many other types of Zionism to choose from. One that struck a chord with me, and that one of my friends claims as her own personal ideology to this day, is culinary Zionism. 
And that's the form my family and I practiced on Wednesday of this week as we celebrated Israel's 72nd Independence Day, Yom HaTzmaut. Though we skipped the typical lavish Israeli breakfast of eggs and cheese and salads and pastries, it was a work day in America after all. My sister and I made shakshuka for the family, and our first attempt at the dish featuring eggs poached in a simmering tomato and pepper stew was a great success. Then for dinner, my mom fried up delicious chicken schnitzel, which we ate with sides of falafel and hummus, Israeli salad, french fries with trina drizzled all over it. It's hard for me to believe this now but I was in Israel just two months ago. Something about the knowledge that right now I can't go there makes me miss it so much more. And I'm feeling very in touch with my culinary Zionism right now, missing the Middle Eastern foods from Azura in Jerusalem's Machneuda market and the way too sweet, way too caloric overloaded waffles from Waffle Bar of Emek Rafaim and the schnitzel from Pinati, and the shakshuka from Tmol Shilshom, and the brunch at Kafit, and the falafel or shawarma from Halo Teman, which is literally attached to a gas station, but is some of the best I have ever had. And I'm missing ice cream from absolutely anywhere in the country, and some of the more high-end dishes I've gotten to eat at 1848, and Malka, and Lumina, and Blue Sky, where you sit atop the Carlton Hotel and look out over the beautiful Tel Aviv beach below. I miss the snacks you can buy at Israeli convenience stores. On Yom HaTzmaut, I was celebrating all of it and so many other beautiful layers and nuances to our Jewish state of Israel. So to all of our listeners, let me wish you a belated Chag HaTzmaut Sameach, a joyous celebration of this festival of independence. And from all of us, Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom, everyone. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukong Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People Love the Pod. 